This is a podcast from meow.net. Meow! Common Practice, a monthly podcast about the things people do. Things to do with creativity, collaboration, cultural democracy, and the commons. Hello and welcome to another episode of something that we're not quite certain what it's going to be. I'm Owen Kelly and I'm in Helsinki and I'm here to have a conversation that Brendan Jackson suggested I should have. I'm here to have a conversation with Steve Trowe and Chris Baldwin and we've gone back and forward and arranged this conversation and we decided the best thing to do, the best approach to take would be to ask ourselves out loud, what kind of conversation we think Brendan had in mind. Now, we're slightly stymied because Chris hasn't turned up. So what we're going to do now is we're going to do something one stage beyond that. Chris is not here. So Steve and I are going to have a conversation in which, A, we try and imagine why Brendan wanted us to talk to each other, and B, we try and imagine what Chris's contribution to that conversation would have been if he turns up, if he had turned up. And if he does turn up, we'll see what he says about what we've said about what he would have said. Okay, Steve, could you start just by introducing yourself so the listeners know who you are, and then we can go on to discuss why we think we're here. Hello, I'm Steve Throne. I'm very old now. I'm in my 70s. I um, I was a, one of the founder members of uh, one of the community arts organisations that started in the in the, in the early 70s, 1970s, um, called Jubilee. We were suggested we, uh, that you and I should have a, 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 con- a conversation because um, one of our mutual friends, Brendan, uh, Brendan Jackson, has been busy compiling uh, an updated archive online of the whole of Jubilee's work from 1974 to 1994. And that's a fascinating one to, for, for people to look at. And, uh, and I was there for the early part of that, at least. That's a Jubilee Arts, Arts Archive, if you search for it. But um, <clears throat> I think the reason that um, it was suggested that Owen, Chris and I should have a conversation was because well, Chris and I, especially, well, all three of us really have, have been involved in uh, the the business of getting more and more people involved in their own choice of ways in the arts and in creative activity and in cultural engagement for close to 50 years now. So we've seen quite a lot over that period of how things have changed and why they've changed. And maybe some of those reasons are can give us indications for why it matters now. Right. I think I think that I first came across Jubilee in the early 1980s. And I knew Brendan and I knew Sylvia and I, indeed I knew you. But at that point, I think you'd moved on and become an arts officer. Is that correct? Yes. I, I, that was about that. That was just after... Margaret Thatcher became the Prime Minister in 79 and I decided I needed to go and take stock and, uh, and then decide and come back to community arts. But the, only way to, the best way to do that was from the vantage point of, the, of 
the first officer of the regional arts association that had the responsibility for community arts. Well, it was general and community arts then uh, as in that post. And I, my intention was that I'd only be there for about two years. And then I'd, uh, I'd know how things and where pro progress could be made and I could go back into the field. So after two and a half years, I, I left there. But that was my reason for going there. So because West Midlands, West Midlands Arts, the Regional Arts Association, it's important that it was an association and, and not a subdivision of the Arts Council, which it later became and then was abolished by the Arts Council when they, they lost interest in regional involvement at all. Um, and so that's an interesting that's an interesting topic for now, because all of that matters now in terms of leveling up, in terms of um, centralized policy making in a, in an inc by an incompetent government. And, and, uh, and I think now is the time for people of the age we were then in our early 20s to rise up and take some control again about the about the future of creative engagement. Yeah, I don't disagree with you for a second, though, Steve. I think that um, one of the important issues which you've raised uh, you raised in an email when we were talking about what we'd be talking about is the notion of centralisation. You you said that in your experience, Great Britain has one of the most centralised cultural bureaucracies in the world i'm maybe misquoting you am i misquoting you no i don't it isn't it isn't in my belief it's a matter of fact it's a, it's a fact that the uh, that in in the uk we have the most centralized system for cultural policy development uh, policy and cultural funding um, of any in europe why is this do you think what, from your experience in the West Midlands, what make what and your experience on both sides of the fence, and I might add, just for, for listeners' benefit, later Steve became a local councillor, so he's he's experienced cultural development as a practitioner, as a funding officer, and as a, a leader, I believe, in the end of the council, who yeah. had responsibility for or. Yeah, had responsibility for cultural policy in it within the area of the borough. So, how how do you read the centralisation of culture in England or Britain? Because I think that's how they started after the war in 1946. They made a choice then, um, and there was a debate between the then the first chairman of the Arts Council, Maynard Keynes, and and Vaughan Williams, who was on the, on the council, and the debate. And the argument was uh, whether this should be for professional arts activity only, support of professional work only, or whether it should be interested in the whole of the, uh, the way that the arts are relevant and have value, public value for us. Not that they fund everything, but they actually have an interest in everything. They are a national voice for that. And, and Vaughan Williams lost that argument. Maynard Keynes embodied in the Arts Council the principle of the best for the most. And the best for the most has always been the way that they've thought about themselves. And the way to achieve the best for the most is to have central control of that, not to not to, and to narrowly focus only on the professional and the professional practice. Yes. And one thing to note there is that Maynard Keynes is usually seen certainly in the light of the rise of neoliberalism, etc., as a very liberal voice. 
But like many liberals from the early half of the 20th century, when it came to matters of culture, his position was nothing that we would recognize as egalitarian or uh, even liberal. He was very much a, a centralist and very much somebody who believed in top-down top down hierarchical control. It's to be noted, in fact, that at the end of the Second World War, there were two organizations running in parallel. One was SEMA, the Council for Education and Music, which Keynes was the, the chair of. And the other was ENSA, which was the uh, Entertainment Association. The one into which all the light entertainers, the comedians, the the pop the pop singers of their day, as it were, the the big bands, they'd all gone into ENSA, and during the war, both ENSA and SEMA had relied on government funding, and it wasn't simply that Keynes was in favour of the best for the most in a benign way, saying that's what the Arts Council should focus on. He was also instrumental in, in ensuring that ENSA did not continue to get funding. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's, it was, I think it was the way to reconcile what looks like a contradiction in the liberalism and, the, and, and, all the, and what was actually done um, was, the, was the idea that a lot of what happened was, was very much a petition system. It was a bit like conceiving the Arts Council as a, as a kind of national health service. It's about this will be good for you and it will be good for people if we make it accessible. That's the reason for making it increasing audiences and increasing um, yeah, passive involvement and, and, and understanding of what the arts are about. So that, um, so that uh, this will be good for the, for the country at large, I think, was, was, was intended as was, was on a... On a, was, was on a not necessarily a conscious, but a, but on a on a um, on an underlying patrician principle of of policy delivery and policy development. I, yes, again, I, I agree with you, but I think and I think yes, it does have that history, and that I think there is a history of contradiction, or there is a history in which those people who are politically liberal are culturally traditional. And that did have a patrician view. Indeed, yeah. this this that's how the BBC began. And it's we should bear in mind as well that it was a very small group of people that were running all of these institutions. Yeah. They were cross-fertilizing, cross-pollinating or whatever, and cross-recruiting. And if the if the belief of, of the great and the good is that they are doing good, why would and that they have that control, why would they relinquish it? Why would they imagine that anybody might do things better than themselves? And so, and so, and so, regional approaches. So, regionalism has always been a demand from the bottom up, and and has always been resisted from the top down. It has never been suggested from the top down, and and it's that that's that's the, the root of of, our, of our, the cultural, the increasing cultural center, cultural policy center, centralization in this country, and the way that. that um, the available resources are misused and have consistent have been consistently misused. Um, I'm, I've particularly been. You've mentioned my career, and I think, <clears throat> yeah, it's, it, uh, there's been a, a lot of connections with local authorities. A lot of the work that I've done, uh, both as a principal arts officer in Birmingham and as a consultant for uh, several local authorities and 
other public bodies around the world, around the around the region, especially, um, has been uh, has has informed my thinking and and, and my and my and my actions. And latterly, even um, before I kept, became a politician, um, I was interested in the way that the Arts Council was using using resource seemed to be, but I couldn't put my finger on it. Was using lottery resources in particular in ways that they were never intended in the first place, and it was only later, in, in while I was a politician, that I then became involved with um, with something, uh, but which had much more of a, a, some, uh, of, a, of, a of an effect. I think it was a, it was originated by the uh, it, it began with the publication of something called. Rebalancing our capital culture. I know, rebalancing our cultural capital. That's it. In 2013, by my friends, well, friends now, and I've known them for years, uh, Chris Gordon and David Powell and Peter Stark. And that one provided the data that said this is systemic and it is increasing. It has gone on ever since the Arts Council said it was going to change. Um, to a, a more equitable distribution of funding, and London has become the centre of um, of the Arts Council's focus, and and sixty percent of its resources are being focused on London, only you know less than the rest of England. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I became interested and joined and joined in there. You know, that provoked a, a um, that provoked uh, an inquiry by the House of Commons Select Committee, Culture Select Committee into the work of the Arts Council, and we were asked to provide evidence. And, and then for a few, a few months, I did a great deal of work on the way that lottery money is, um, is distributed, because that data, that data for every grant since 1995 was then available. How did this play out in the, in the House of Commons? How did this play out in terms of future policy making? Well, Interestingly, the chair of the uh, Culture Select Committee, who later became the Secretary of State for Culture, um, John, uh, I've forgotten his surname, I'm sorry. Um, he, he and his committee effectively validated the, the first report and all of the evidence that was submitted on the lottery. And, and uh, in their own words, um, suggested that the Arts Council had a duty to make the benefit of their lottery funding um, available within reach of lottery players, of the lottery players that contributed. That any lottery player must reasonably ha expect the benefit to be felt within uh, within within reach of where they live. And that, that, that's an ethical. That's an ethical point. Not a not not about not about because it's not tax derived. It's a voluntary contribution. Did the Arts Council take this on board in any way, or did they ignore it, or did they find a way of uh, acknowledging it without actually enacting it? Well, they did all of that. They did. They produced something called um, this. This is our this our England or something like that, which was which was a which was a which was taken to pieces by the by the editor by the, by um by uh, by the editor of Arts Professional, uh, who know, who is a statistician as well, Liz, and she 
she basically um, demolished the entire data uh, research base for the for the for this report from the Arts Council, which was a whitewash. And at the end of at the end of the select committee hearing, um, Peter Bazalgette, the chair, then chair, said, "Yes, we have struggled with this for some time to to, to redistribute funds around the country. Give us two years and judge us then." That's what he said. So it was accepted that this was the case. And over those two years, the Arts Council has made spurious efforts to make uh, to make available increased resources. But the core of the problem remains exactly the same as increasing. And the reason the reason why it's important now, and I'm going on, I know too much. The reason why it's important now, and why people who listen to us and and, uh, and people who think about these things. And people who want to see um, cultural engagement um, flourish in the future, especially in all of our regions and, and home countries, um, they should be aware that the lottery license is now to change hands. It's been taken from Camelot and Alwyn, as they're called, uh, commence the license and take over the license as from next year. Now, their bid. Their winning bid, which demolished, which defeated Camelot, promised to increase, to double the, re the return to good causes over the 10 years um, from the 1.8 million a year, uh, 8 billion a year that now goes to the, to the good causes to 3.6 billion a year. Now, where does that new money go and how does that get used? to support at a local level and a regional level people's involvement and benefit from the arts? That's a reasonable question to ask. And to leave, and not to ask the question is to leave it to the Arts Council, and we know what the Arts Council will do. So do you have or do you know of any suggestions for an alternative method of distributing the extra, the additional funding, or mm. indeed all the funding? Does it is Alwyn is Alwyn obligated to provide funding for the Arts Council, or is the Arts Council one of a number of recipients they could send the money to? In other words, is there a statutory duty on Alwyn to <clears throat> channel the good causes money through the Arts Council, or do they have a say in the matter? No. Um... All women's responsibility is entirely um, a franchise for the running of and sale, uh, running of the lottery as a as a as a sales uh, and the sales from that, and they then um, they then contribute the agreed percentage um, of the income from the lottery to uh, I think uh, to a single fund which is held by the Department of Culture, the government. So that is that holds the, all of the funds that are raised um, by the lottery, the lottery licensee. So the lottery licensee the hands that money over, and then yeah. the government, and the, the government, Department of Culture, the government, yeah, has the. Government, the yeah. Sorry, they hold the funds. The Department of Culture holds the funds. Um, I think it's called the National Lottery Development Fund. And it has to publish each um, each quarter 
uh, I think the uh, it, it's 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 it, or is it Camelot that just that publishes each quarter? It's published anyway annually. Um, exactly how much they they have had and what what they what they've invested in, what they've had from the investment, what's been raised, and what's been distributed to each of the agree uh, each of the appointed distributors. And those people are distributors that are appointed by government, and they include arts, sport, heritage, and community organized and 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 the community fund. And the, and that is in the gift of so in all of this is in the gift of government. Not only who who um, who operates the license, but also who receives the income from the license, how much they receive, and what percentages go to each of them. And what assessment criteria? It's the Department for Culture, then I presume, assesses at least nominally each of its appointed institutes, the Arts Council, the Sports Council, whatever, and decides every year whether to continue no, funding. No, that isn't how it works. The way it works is uh -huh. there is a by statute there is an agreed percentage for each of the good causes. 20%, I think, for art, 20% for, for, for sport, and 20% for, um, maybe, I think, 20% for heritage. And the rest goes to community funding. Well, it used to be that case. I don't think it's changed yet. But that's in the gift of, the, of, the, of, of, of Parliament, but it's, it's by statute. So there would have to be an act of Parliament to change that percentage. No, that so wasn't there's, quite... no, there's no application and there's no choice in terms of how much each of them will receive. It is predictable. Okay, then I'm, I'm mis misstating my question here, or I'm misunderstanding. My question isn't. Let's just keep to the. Let's assume that it's twenty percent. So let's just mm -hmm. assume then that it's twenty percent to the arts in quote marks, and so the Department for Culture are obliged. By statute, to distribute that, to distribute that. My question is: What is the role of the Arts Council of England? What is what is the are they are they licensed by the are they the, the licensees or is it possible just like it, it's possible for somebody to apply to run the lottery? Is it possible, for the sake of argument, for you and I to s apply to the Department for Culture to run an alternative to the Arts Council? No, it isn't. It, it isn't done by application. Those, the appointed the appointed distributors are also appointed by statute, by part by Act of Parliament, and that was how it was originally. Um, uh, I, I, I think well, well those are the good causes were I think you know, it has changed it has changed and 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 vary, uh, varied over the years um, because of course this is the UK national lottery and that um, in the development in that national development fund the the, cult, the culture secretary here con uh, controls only the only the uh, receives only the funds relating to England, and each of the home countries, Northern Ireland, Scotland, and Wales, have their own, and they're run by their governments. Um, so, 
and the, and in terms of the distributors, there's also um, like so the so the twenty twenty percent for the arts is twenty percent for the arts across the UK, and it means that the Arts Council receives something like it used to be thirteen. I think it is thirteen point nine five percent instead of twenty percent, the, the full twenty percent. It comes out at about two hundred and fifty million a year. Um, so if if that were to double, which is what all winner promised, and that was the basis for their bid, then there will be another two hundred and fifty million that the Arts Council will have control of. At the moment, there is no change in that, no proposed change in that. And there's no proposed change in the good causes, although there could be, and a, and a campaign could be raised for it. And, it, it. and I think one of the dangers is that the way that the Arts Council has behaved actually makes that very, very likely or very, very possible. And it's a, it's a doorstep winner to go into those areas where, um, where there's, where there's um, also deprivation and low income from the lottery and tell them that they'll get their money back. Okay, and just like that, we've been joined by Chris Baldwin, who is sitting somewhere that's not the West Midlands or Helsinki. Where are you, Chris? Hello, both. I'm joining you from Plovdiv in Bulgaria, which is about um, an hour from the Greek border and an hour from the Turkish border down in the southeast of Europe. Right. Well, Chris has arrived late due to technical difficulties. So I'm just going to briefly fill you in, Chris, on where we've got to in this conversation. Because Steve and I were talking briefly, obviously, given the the amount of things we could have been talking about, anything we talked about would be brief. But we were talking briefly about how Steve's career had moved from being a practitioner to being a, an arts officer to being a counsellor, and how the issue that has run through all of these is the massive and increased centralization of cultural policy within Britain and its top-down nature from its very beginnings after the Second World War to now, where the Arts Council still, in one way or another, lives up to its original motto of the best for the most. Now, Chris had just uh, Steve had just pointed out that Camelot will lose the license to hold the UK National Lottery next year, and that the winners all win, the new lottery providers, have promised to double the amount of money that's given to good causes, which approximately means that, according to our calculations, the Arts Council of England should get something like an extra 250 million, double from 250 million to 500 million. And I was saying to Steve, what do you think is the best steps people who live in the UK could take in order to see that they make their voices heard in how this new money should it arrive, is distributed, what it's distributed for, and where it's distributed. And Steve was just about to 
explain his response to that when Chris arrived and the system collapsed. Steve. Hi, Chris. How do you... Steve, it's lovely to see you. And apologies for my technical errors. Not a problem. How, how do you see this unfolding, Steve, in the best circum- of circumstances? I think... Um, I think immediately, uh, I, I'm not sure whether they've signed off the, li- the, the, the new license for Albany yet, but certainly the politicians should be asked to do one thing, and it was in the Labour, we, we got it into the Labour manifest, General Election Manifesto in 2019. It was added by Tom Watson as the, when he was deputy leader. Uh, one of the one of the things on culture was to introduce the principle of tr- transparency and where the money comes from. That's transparency. Just that. Just just simply making available the information about where the money comes from. I have done the work on that uh, with the available information, and have then analysed for it as an as a model the West Midlands uh, combined authority area which is bigger than the metropolitan area, and of which I was a board member when I was leader of Sandwell. Um, I've analysed the 41 parliamentary constituencies that comprise, that the the, the combined authority comprises. And uh, over the the seven years to 2017, since since the Tories, since we've had Tory-led governments as well, only all but five of those parliamentary areas have uh, contributed much more in their lottery in, in their purchase of lottery sales than they have in their receipt of lottery grants. So, for every one, for example, in in Warsaw, one of the most deprived areas uh, constituencies in the country. One, an area which voted, which had the highest vote leave, one of the highest vote leave uh, scores, um, one of the one, the highest levels of deprivation, uh, also has one of the highest levels of contribution to the lottery. Um, and if you have that, uh, you know, if you have, and, and in, in Warsaw, for every pound of your lottery money that is contributed to good causes, you get back 11p. In the same period. Okay. So I think that sort of that sort of information, where the money comes from, would just introducing transparency as a condition of the license. At the moment, Camelot is required. Uh, Camelot was required to give the addresses of every single retail outlet um, in in the UK as a as a result of a. Freedom of information request. There, are, there were then forty-eight thousand retail outlets. If you divide the retail, if you divide the total sum for good causes by the retail outlets, then you know, and 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 the number of sales, the, to, the total sales figures by the number of retail outlets, then you've got a reasonable proxy for it for making an assessment of how how many in each area, and uh, and that can be down to the level of neighbourhoods. Because um, you have postcodes as well. Now that can be done, but it could also be reported. You know, Camelot, whoever operates the license, it knows exactly where how the sales are going and where they're coming from. They're making choices about where they put those those their, their retail um, 
their retail systems. And more and more is going online. And in order to play the lottery online, you have to get, have a you have to get, have an account. Uh, now you can anonymize the account and and simply and simply even more precisely describe the postcodes for every single uh, <coughs> yeah the concentrations in postcodes across across the whole of the country. So analyze of so the data the transparency as a condition of the license to report to the department not only or to the gambling commission which regulates the 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 the, the operator. Um, this is all very technical stuff, isn't it? Um, but it means it means that there is a there is a duty uh, that is introduced for information on sales of lottery tickets to be made available. That's the first step. Once that's known and it becomes apparent what is happening across the whole of the lottery uh, distribution, then the issue about funding policy as a whole, including the way that two hundred and fifty thousand and the extra extra the extra 1.8 billion a year in total for the lottery is to be used. So let's have transparency first, and then I can, we can leave it to researchers to make the case and for politicians to argue in parliament about what needs to be changed in statute. Okay, thank you, Steve. Chris, do you have anything you want to add to that? Um, it's a really very interesting conversation. Uh, and one that I haven't actually been part of in the UK for over 20 years. So I think I'd better uh, not contribute to this at the moment, this this particular <laughs> section. Okay, no, that's fine. That's fine. I think well, that we were just about to wrap up our conversation at mm. that point. So let me turn to Chris then and say, what we started, we started this whole whole discussion by acknowledging that Brendan had brought the three of us together because he said that we would uh, have things to say to each other which would interest a wider audience. And Steve and I have gone off in one direction, and I think that's been very productive. Well, what do you think we should talk about? What do you think we should talk about, Chris? that would be building upon the things that you and Steve did in the West Midlands mm. and relate to what might be done today. Let me start by telling you a story of what happened to me over the last three days. And I think this might actually explain a little bit as to why I was 45 minutes late in joining you uh, and also uh, have something to do with the passions that I think the three of us share and why Brendan brought us together. I, as I told you before, live in this... Uh, corner of eastern uh, eastern europe in the southeast of bulgaria and i spend a lot of my time as i always have in the mountains both here and where i lived before which is in spain and over the last five days here uh, in the village where i live in bulgaria uh, we have suffered a devastating forest fire uh, that probably was lit by someone throwing a cigarette out of their car as they drove past but has decimated over 15,000 hectares of land and uh, left uh, three villages in a state of utter shock. Luckily, the fire seems to have been put out or, 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 or curtailed this morning. And uh, the reasons this fire started in the first place are pretty evident. Um, but I tell you this story not out of some kind of mundane way of drawing it back to me. But actually, I spent 10 years in Spain 
working on precisely this with communities, which was uh, how we could prevent forest fires uh, by making community arts interventions or contribute towards the forest fires. In Spain, in Castilla Leon, uh, which is one of the biggest regions of Europe, uh, geographically speaking, uh, in from two thousand and four, uh, to, from two thousand and one until two thousand and nine, I was part of a, a process. Uh, there had been literally hundreds of thousands of hectares of land lost to forest burning in Spain uh, in the period running up to that. And uh, as I was told by one of the forest uh, fire uh, prevention officers, we have everything. We have helicopters, we have well-trained firefighters, we have all the equipment we need, but there are still year on and year on more and more fires. And uh, she said that the only thing we can't do is get inside of people's heads and understand why they're happening. And we turn to you, cultural practitioners, for this. And, and this seemed to be a, um, a pivotal moment, both in the way Spanish authorities thought about uh, 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 tragedies such as forest fires, but also for the community arts movement in Spain, of which I was an integral part of, I think, because to some degree people were looking to us for answers that they thought no one else could have. And I spent, along with colleagues, uh, the most incredible 10 years working in small villages. Some uh, municipals, municipal areas had maybe 80 villages with a total population of 105 people. Uh, and these villages were in the most uh, degraded state. There was a heart, there was a soul, but there simply weren't the people to make the difference. And so all sorts of major forces were impacting on these places. Depopulation, lack of political interest, and huge, huge uh, economic powers. These economic powers uh, in, involved principally mafia-type organizations who were benefiting directly from forest fires. Uh, if a forest fire uh, destroys the outer, outer part of a, a tree, the inner part is usually still quite valuable uh and and therefore can still be bought at a hugely cut down excuse the pun um price uh and have a lot of value value on the market so all sorts of logging companies and semi-mafia organizations were benefiting from forest fires in a direct economic way that bit was easy to correct uh the socialist government at that time led by zapatero uh changed uh, the law to say that anything that had been burnt could not be sold on the market. And that stopped that problem. But there was nevertheless a major, major problem uh, and a series of socio-political issues to do with depopulation, perception of the rural uh, communities by themselves, uh, of themselves and from outside, uh, relationships with EU funding schemes, all of many of which not known about or, or negated by local politicians. Um, and we used, over a number of years, a whole series of community arts, uh, particularly theatre, forum theatre, over 10 years to make certain inroads. Now, looking at the statistics today of Spain, which I've been looking at, effectively, you can say this made no difference. Uh, forest fires are exponential, both uh, in Spain, in Greece, 
where I can see the forest fires uh, from where I was uh, only three days ago, uh, and and here in Bulgaria. So um, I suppose I enter with you with that emotional maelstrom going on at the moment. But uh, the village in which I am, uh, it, it reminded me actually of a line by Berto Brecht yesterday, because uh, the Facebook page that I belong to in my village uh, were not praising the workers who were going into the forests um, to put these out without correct, correct masks and without correct equipment. They were praising God for having been um, uh, 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 generous in his... Um, uh, 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 control of the weather conditions and allowing the winds to push in a different direction. And I just thought we have an awful lot of work still to do in looking at how uh, rural communities uh, can can assess value and come up with political strategies to uh, respond to very concrete and very material uh, issues that are facing them. So that's my introduction. Hello, it's lovely to be here. And apologies for being late. I left my village uh, because all the internet is down due to the fires. And I came here to try and join you online uh, in Plovdiv. So that's that's my excuse. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Chris. And I'm very glad you made it. And I think the point you're making here is uh, extremely important because I think one of the differences, I was thinking about this in an entirely different context last week. One of the major differences over the last 50 years is the move from a per periods of social optimism to periods of quite reasonable apocalyptic gloom. Mm. And I think so the con I think the context within which we've done our work has changed dramatically. So at the end of the 60s, start of the 70s, people really felt that they were going to make a revolutionary change. I don't necessarily mean revolutionary in a very narrow political sense, but that, that things would be extraordinarily different as a result of their efforts. And now, as, as, as Chris has just said, I feel quite often we live in the, in the kind of uh, the backwaters that have been left after we failed to make these revolutionary changes, or alternatively, circumstances haven't worked out as we thought and we find ourselves floating in the black water, backwaters unable to conjure up much in the way of public optimism what do you feel about that either of you uh i'm struggling to remember exactly what poilu freddy says about this but i wish i could draw it to uh mind more quickly at this moment but he talks about optimistic pessimism and pessimistic optimism mm. uh, and 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 how uh, concrete knowledge uh, um, overrides both that we have to start from a, a a position where our cultural interventions our political interventions are based on concrete knowledge and I was struck uh, having joined you late uh, late just hearing Steve talking analytically about the funding streams and the way um uh, uh 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 the way you can actually break down and understand how different uh, uh uh boroughs uh contribute towards the lottery tickets but also receive money back this kind of concrete information hopefully will transform the way people uh make decisions at a later stage i think i, th I but to come to the to the real core of it it well, look, let me go back one step. I 
started professionally in about 1983 or four, and I joined into the theatre and education movement. And at that stage, um, I was deeply influenced and impressed by Skipped and the Standing Conference of Young People's Theatre and the journals they were producing uh, and the political leadership that was happening at that stage. And although I was never... Um, I never could align myself to uh, a, a Trotsky's point of view as it was being demonstrated and manifested through the Socialist Workers' Party. It was nevertheless um, a collegiate approach, uh, a, a approach based on solidarity. And although my analysis led me in a different direction, it was nevertheless we were in the same camp. And then a lot of the theoretical material that was being developed about social transformation and, and, and revolutionary approaches was being applied in a very concrete way, a way that I could understand, even to a, a primary education and theatre for young people, theatre and education, participatory strategies. And I found that deeply reassuring that there was an optimism about it, even if you disagreed technically or politically with certain conclusions. Uh, and out of out of that debate and and disquiet with some of the directions it was going on, a new initiative came out of Young People's Theatre or Theatre and Education, if I remember rightly, through a journal called Young uh, Young Voices, uh, which I actually ended up part of the editorial committee. And um, it was a little bit more, it was quite a lot more pluralistic. It took in and acknowledged um, LGBTQ agendas. Uh, it uh, acknowledged much more... Uh, uh, racial politics, and obviously feminism. And no, even if you looked at this whole broad scope of uh, thinking and practice and theory across that whole spectrum from, skipped right, uh, from, from, from the Skip Journal all the way through to New Voices, there was a joining together of theory and practice and political commitment uh, based on the notion that our work somehow contributed towards transformation of the social space. And coming from a very working class background, uh, uh, where my father, who was a trade union uh, organizer, was hugely skeptical of my uh, ambition to work in the theatre, I was able to kind of convince him using his own language that there was a good space uh, to be had there for any anybody of, of, of our persuasion. So um, I say all of that because at the same time, I remember in my early years, in my 20s, that there was a group of theatre practitioners who I didn't actually have much time for at the time uh, in, in, in the theatre circles. And these were the what you called the single issue companies, the companies who did stuff on health or road safety or, or um, smoking or, or, or what have you. And, and uh, I, I, I kind of looked at them and thought, where's their theoretical basis? Because if you if you kind of scratch the surface, what do you do after the five shows on smoking? What, what, what's it leading you towards? Where do you go in terms of analytical progression? Um, I'm a lot more sympathetic to it now in a way, although, although I think uh, unless you have a kind of political and moral analysis underpinning any choice you make, uh, in in our work, uh, you will soon um, get lost, lost down funding streams where you're fighting for money to to complete something in your own agenda. You could um, end up just serving the, the purposes of another organisation and, and and lose the broader uh, uh, broad, broader picture. But on the other hand, uh, having as I told you before, worked in Spain on this uh, project on forest fires. 
Uh, actually, uh, in Spain, well, what can I say? Uh, uh, a programa contra los uh, incendios forestales was the name of the project, and it was it was part of uh, Agenda for uh, Twenty One. Um, there was a very significant analysis underpinning it about the socio and political transformation of our societies from essentially rural communities to urban communities. And it looked at this process in terms of class, in terms of the uh, um, experience of women, and to some degree, the experience of race. And out of it came an analysis which was ecological and environmental. So we looked at and were very conscious of how Franco's uh, dam building uh, 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 processes, his destruction of health uh, services for women uh, uh, from the 50s onwards in rural areas was all part of a social transformation towards urbanization and led to the weakness, the de uh, decapitation of uh, rural resilience. So from a very single issue uh, uh, program, such as uh, 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 forest fires, actually underpinning it was a huge socio-political analysis. And uh, I suspect that actually there's little less gap between single issue projects, as I used to call them, and and this wider agenda than, than um, there probably was. In terms of positivism and, and nihilism, I think, I don't think we've got any option except to keep struggling. I mean, there are people that I, I saw utter terror on faces of people who I love so much in the last few days in the village, ladies who have 90 and have never left the village in in this strange country called Bulgaria, who walked over a mountain when she was 19. She's now 90. Uh, she walked over a mountain and married the boy in the next village, and she hasn't left the village. And the terror on her face yesterday as she, she, she thought that her village was going to be engulfed. There's only 90 people living in it. Uh, there's no time for... Pessimism, we, we have to organize. Um, and these, and it may seem as though the, the, the um, uh, uh, odds are stacked against us, but hasn't that always been the case in any social transformation movement? The first thing I did in order to feel less isolated and hopefully bring some energy to this situation was to contact my colleagues in Greece. Uh, earlier this year, I had the huge privilege of working with. Uh, Elefsina, European Capital of Culture 2023, which is next to Athens, where I directed their opening events, which were about exactly this theme, but from a water point of view, from the sea point of view. Um, and I contacted colleagues who I know uh, come from the area of northern Greece, where this tragedy is happening at the moment around um, Alexandropolis. And I said, listen, it's time. Let's let's use this network we've built together over the last 10 years of different European capitals of culture. And let's start bidding for money from the EU uh, or anywhere else in order to make um, rural uh, uh, cultural projects uh, in these areas where these forest fires are happening. 
what else can we as cultural practitioners do? We, we have to apply our work. We have to retrieve our optimism and, and positive insistence on the struggle uh, and apply our analysis and, and hearts and minds to this process. Like all of us, I imagine, I know Steve, I'm sorry, Owen, if I'm speaking out of turn, but we're grandparents and I held my six-month-old granddaughter in my arms who had arrived to see me uh, a few weeks ago from Spain. And... Uh, I, I, I couldn't lay on the sofa and think that uh, another day had passed without trying to do something to make this more possible for her to live her life in a positive way. But of course, this starts, as Freire says, with a strict analysis of who our, what, what are the forces against us, but then go through a conscientization process with the people we work with using culture um, in order to get to a point where we can offer and, and rehearse strategic political interventions uh, in order to try and uh, make the difference. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. I noticed Steve and I were both nodding while you were saying that. I certainly agree that we simply shouldn't permit ourselves pessimism. We don't have an option except to be optimistic. And I think you're right, Chris, that, that it has always been that way. The nature of the problems we struggle against may shift, or the surface of the nature of the problems we struggle against may shift, but we still have to keep struggling. I'll stop us there and say thank you both very much for contributing. I think we ended up covering a much wider area than I thought we would, and I think in a strange and useful way, the two topics of national lottery funding in the UK and forest fires in Europe form part of a larger whole, and that whole is what we need to be struggling against right now in favour of an optimistic social transformation that should be within our grasp. Thank you both very much. Now that you've heard the podcast, you can go to the website to find out more details, including references and links. The website's at meow.net. That's M-I-A-A-W dot net. See you there.